Welcome to Forecasting Impact, a podcast brought to you by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings together experts from academia and industry to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, healthcare, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Forecasting Impact. Um, this is Maddie here. Um, I'm connecting to you from Brisbane, uh, sunny Queensland. And I'm going to introduce our guest in a second, but our, our co-host is today is uh, Sevandi. I'm Sevandi Kandararachi, and I'm from CSIRO, uh, the National uh, Science Agency in Australia. Today's guest uh, is Professor Scott Cunningham. Let me introduce him first, and then we're going to have a a really insightful chat with him today. Professor Scott Cunningham is a professor of public policy at the University of Strasbourg. He is the editor-in-chief of the journal Technological Forecasting and Social Change alongside co-editor Michi Hu. He teaches Master of Science degree in urban planning, public policy, and technology policy. He has studied under foresight and forecasting experts Ben Martin from University of Sussex and Alan Porter Meredith Professor from Georgia Institute of Technology. Scott previously worked in industry as a knowledge discovery analyst. He provides knowledge exchange as part of the Glasgow City Innovation District. He earned patents and helped found technology startups in Silicon Valley. He previously lived in Netherlands and United States and his family are trilingual, Dutch, English, and French. How cool is that? Um, welcome, Scott. Oh, welcome. Um, thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here today. So many. I wish I was a, a, a pro like they are, but I, I'm passive in those languages, so I hear lots of interesting things being spoken around me. <laughs> I can say as many interesting things back as I'd like, but never mind. They work with me on it, on this. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, thanks so much, Scott, um, for being our guest today. You know, our podcast is about uh, forecasting, and uh, I was thinking that who would be a better person than you as a uh, editor in chief in uh, technological forecasting and social change. And um, so, uh, could you introduce yourself to our uh, audiences and uh, how you started in your career, how you got to to the point that you are now, and what do you do? Yeah, certainly. I um, I got started in my career as an engineer. Um, I uh, am a I'm a first generation immigrant. My London parents moved to the south of the United States where I was born, and it was just. And I learned my dad was a uh, uh, an engineer, a a uh, uh, a machine designer. He was educated in a in the in the British polytechnic system, and he wanted really for me to have that applied kind of background. Uh, so it was really just natural that I'd go to the local uh, center of expertise. So that was the Georgia Institute of Technology. And I'm very proud of that university. That university sort of has, has continued to grow, grown more and more successful over the years. So that's a really, uh, that's a really uh, been beneficial to my career. But I struggled a little bit, frankly, with engineering. Uh, my dad was a very practical man. And the, and the engineering I learned at Georgia Tech was highly mathematical. It was a whole practice uh, basically uh, learned from the from Russian immigrants that came to the United States and taught an academic practice of engineering. And uh, so I was thinking about what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to use this? And I recall finding 
a, a small book in in a um, in a bookstore in a, little, in a mall, you know, just a very typical uh, small bookstore, and it was about forecasting uh, with pearl curves and with Fisher Pride diffusion curves. We can talk about what that means, but it's a really practical technique for taking time series data and anticipating where we might be in ten years or twenty years. And they were doing it on things like you know the hot technology of the time or CDs. And so, uh, so I thought, wow, you know, imagine that you can do engineering, but you can do it to help people to understand the context of technologies in society. So that really uh, set me going. Another thing that really helped was uh, Georgia Tech really introduced me to research at an early age. I might, I might have, because I became part of this Center for Technology uh, Policy, uh, technology assessment and, and policy, they uh, they brought me in as a research assistant. I began writing articles when I was 18 or 19. Um, and that's also a center that's really graduated many students from all around the world in this practice of uh, both technology assessment and, and, also, and also forecasting. And that really launched my career. I really sort of transitioned from technology towards the more soft or social sides of the things. But, but uh, the things that get me excited is the applied is is, a, is applied work. I like I like creativity. I like problem solving. I like working with data and forecasting is the right kind of topic for me to to, to touch all those areas. Scott, what a fascinating story! So, can I ask which engineering was the first degree in, like sort of mechanical, civil, like in those categories? So I, I um, maybe I, you know, when you're young, you don't fully understand the role or career of engineers. So I started with airspace engineering because I thought, well, you know, space technologies and we're looking at the future, that will be super exciting. And that's a fine degree. Don't get me wrong. That's also what my father did. But I thought, well, I can see what this is headed. I'm going to go work for an airspace manufacturer. Again, no problem with that career, but that wasn't right for me. So I sort of slipped sideways into engineering science because I thought, well, this is a degree, engineering science and engineering mathematics, which uh, I jokingly say is the uh, physics of the of the 19th century, or maybe the physics of the 18th century. But anyhow, it's really <laughs> useful. <laughs> and then uh, yeah. filling with this center, uh, which was hosted in the uh, uh, School of Industrial and Systems Engineering. So that's a very fine uh, school of industrial engineering in the United States. Yeah. And they've had two traditions. They've had a really hard, hard OR tradition, and they've also had a soft OR tradition. And I was amongst the more soft OR uh, traditions. And, and one of the unusual things that they did was they did um, technology forecasting as a core course for bachelor's as well as master's degree students. So then I thought, well, what am I going to do for my master's degree? I want to stay here at this university. And so I went into systems engineering, which was at, uh, which was in the industrial engineering department. So it's been moving from more technical matters to more organizational and social and decision-making matters. And I still didn't quite find my home then because uh, at that time, Georgia Tech became a, what they called a technological university. So they really brought the social sciences into the core fold of technology and they founded a new program in public policy. So I defected from my really good program in public policy, in, in, in systems engineering to go to public policy. But that's a long story to your answer, but ultimately the degree was engineering science and mechanics, which fell under civil yeah. engineering, and yeah. public policy, which fell under uh, the school of uh, social sciences. Interesting. Yeah. We have, let's go, we have a similar background. Um, I have also studied industrial engineering on my undergrad, and also I did industrial engineering masters. 
I know Georgia Tech has a really uh, long tradition and very strong group in that domain. But the fascinating thing about industrial engineering is it gives you such a broad view of, of the problems. And um, you can look into anything, you know, you have that systematic uh, really view and systematic thinking to get into different things. Um, so the, um, you, you said you got into more, more and more applied things and, and getting into moving from technological forecasting and coming to public policy. So what, do you, what is your research now? What do you do these days? What's your focus on? So I'm, um, I'm very proud to be a recent uh, uh, hire from uh, University of Strathclyde. I've come from the Delft University of Technology. So this is in the Netherlands. And yeah. the, the Dutch are really good with infrastructure. They're, for good reasons, really concerned about water, keeping it clean, keeping it cold, keeping our feet dry. Uh, and so there I was doing uh, management of infrastructure kind of questions. Um, and now I've come to uh, the School of Government Public Policy, which was uh, which is one of the best political um, science uh, faculties in the UK. So I do think I have something to contribute to political science, but political science and public policy and even infrastructure and technology, to me, they all fit together in a big picture. But uh, but uh, the picture needs to be assembled. So the kind of breadth of experience uh, and education uh, that you've had, Mazi, is something that I'd hope to be able to give to my students, even if they're not industrial engineers. So my newest angle is to talk about the politics of technical change. I'm really interested in why, uh, how, how, how decision makers determine the course of future technologies. Um, and here in Scotland, we're talking about a green revolution, about a uh, about uh, a, a, an inclusive and equitable transition to green growth. We have some of the, the UK's largest green clusters uh, with the, growth, the highest value add uh, and the biggest employment centers. Uh, I mean, we've got the old, older stuff too, like the petrochemical industries, but we also have one of, uh, right here at, outside my window, I can see one of the largest uh, wind farms in all of Europe uh, on, a, on the, in the, uh, you know, in the hills surrounding the city of, city of Glasgow. So I'm very much interested in the governance of technology and the politics that, that governance change. And I think this runs parallel with my previous background in education about the economics of technical change. But there's a story that technologies are entirely driven uh, by markets. And if that were true, okay, but we know that they're not. We know that some technologies are promoted or put forward by governments and by regions. Uh, and by by uh, firms, I have to I have to emphasize the, the really significant role that firms have in in choosing which technologies to put forward. So so that's the that's that's where my work lies right now. Scott, Scott can I uh, ask? So in this sense, when you're saying technological forecasting, it's not so much like a time series forecasting uh, thing that you know, like say forecasting uh, stocks or something like that. It is, is it like a more complex thing, like which technology gets taken up uh, depending on the funding and the other factors and the policies and maybe uh, the uh, the opinions of the broader public. Is it like that? that you're building these complex kind of models where you're forecasting the future of technology? So I'm interested, I'm definitely interested in the both sides. I do like the, I do like the analysis of time series and I like the uh, exploration of knowledge and indicators of science and technology development. Uh, it just so happens that lately I'm looking into the institutions behind technology. And if we had hard 
numbers where with which we could measure institutional commitment to technology or the winners or losers of technology, I would certainly apply that. But the tools of institutional economics are, they're really fascinating, but they're highly qualitative. I mean, I, again, I would like it if they were more, uh, if we could apply more quantitative techniques to it, but they often talk about sets of rules. Uh, they'll talk about uh, trajectories and lock-ins. So one author that, that is very much in this tradition of both the time series and the modeling side, but also the institutional analysis is Brian Arthur. He tells a very famous story about the QWERTY keyboard, how the QWERTY keyboard came forward. You look at the keys on the, on the keyboard and you think, who designed this? What a terrible design. <laughs> and it was actually deliberately designed to slow people down. Uh, when you would tangle up the keys on the old style typewriters, they wanted to slow you down so that you'd take your time and not break the machine. But it's still the thing that we've got today on our, on our supposedly ultra-modern keyboards. And Arthur says, look, sometimes technologies don't have anything to do with efficiency. We haven't achieved any technological frontier necessarily. Uh, it's got to do with who comes first, who locks in uh, designs and dominant uh, designs. So Arthur's on that same tradition, technology institutions and I can watch as things get adopted and see that they, they lock themselves into a certain trajectory from which we don't get anything new for a long while. Yeah. Um, so the technological forecasting and social change is such a broad um, uh, you know, topic. Like it includes a lot of topics. It, and um, you know, for in, in forecasting impact um, and the International Institute of Forecasters, which I'm a member of and uh, is supporting this podcast, we hear a lot about time series forecasting, machine learning for time series forecasting. We do have some overlaps uh, with technological forecasting and social, social good forecasting and things like that. But um, could you give us um, you know, a, a view of um, technological forecasting and social change, the, the, the sort of the topics that you cover and the sort of the papers that you have? I'd, I'd be very happy to. The, it's a... Uh... 50-year-old journal. Uh, I am the third, there's only been three editors in its history. Um, and I've been in this role for two years now. Uh, and I think sometimes, so the founding of the journal was back in 1969. And it's at that time, the hot topics were trend extrapolation, trend analyses, but also system dynamics kind of modeling. So at that time, you, you saw this MIT tradition of building dynamical models of of cities uh, and of industry. And it always came with this recognition that, that technology is part of a, a social system. So we always had this pushback of, well, here's what the hard facts say, here's what the science and the technology demands, but here's what the markets need. And so it had this empirical tradition, but also this sort of rational style of analysis that we can build simulation models and we can put our logic in. And it's all in support of decision makers. Then around 1971, uh, the, the United States founded a, uh, a technology uh, advisory board for the, for the US Congress, an impact assessment board. And the, and the publisher, which has always been Elsevier, came back to the journal and they said, well, do you, don't you want something of that? You know, look at the government talking about the impact of future technologies, including an environment. Shouldn't that be part of the journal as well? So that word social change really meant impact assessment, societal impact assessment, environmental impact assessment, the, un the intended and the unintended consequences of technology. And 
I've really spent with my co-editor and I have really spent our first year or two getting on top of what the what the main topics of the journal are after 50 years of this is what we want and this is what we get. How do we curate knowledge to create a cohesive whole? It's been very, uh, very enthusiastic. Uh, we have more than 100 submissions every week. Uh, wow. We're maybe um, doing very well in terms of the kind of metrics that authors would like to see in terms of your impact, uh, uh, your impact or citation by other authors. So we get a lot of things in and I've tried to reflect what makes the journal so appealing. We were gonna be, uh, it was always a big tent kind of journal where you can talk about things in an applied way, in an interdisciplinary way. So what we want and what we get can be two different things and we try and curate it. So the big topics as I've discovered them really are this field of technology forecasting. And by that, I mean the quantitative analysis and the simulative analysis. Then there's a, a big part of the journal that's about foresight. Um, we could talk about why foresight and forecasting are or are not the same thing. There's even an Atlantic divide with Europeans wanting to talk more about foresight and American audiences to the journal wanting to talk more about forecasting. And then the third thing is management of technology. Uh, so I think it's important that we really recognize that we've got a big style of work in management of technology. And I'm even prepared to take it to that next level about what I see inside those topics as well. But I'll put, I'll put it back to you and see if you wanna talk more about those big three pillars for the journal. Yeah, definitely. So this paper that I was looking at unveiling the knowledge structure of technological forecasting and social change uh, through an NMF-based hierarchical topic model. It's a really comprehensive and interesting paper for those of you out there listening. If you want to uh, know what technological forecasting and social change has covered from 1969 to 2020, uh, definitely have a read through this paper. It is written by uh, Scott and uh, Lin Zhu. Um, it is fantastic. And um, you know, it, it just gives you a really comprehensive view of, of, of the topics that um, you can think of in, in uh, technological forecasting and social change. I think the uh, pillars that you described are, are, are really good, uh, summarizes the scope of the work um, in uh, technological forecasting and social change. Do you see any, uh, are you familiar with international, well, definitely familiar with international of forecasting, but are you uh, familiar with type of the works that we have there? And uh, what are the connections that you see between these two? like the journal, International Journal of Forecasting and uh, Technological Forecasting and Social Change. I do know about it in passing, and we see some things that are at the boundaries of the two journals, and we try and think about where does that best fit. I would say we like uh, white box models so that we really want to understand what's going on inside the models. This is nothing... This is no uh, slam against time series modeling or even machine learning models, uh, but we want to we want to be able to open that up so that we can talk about them with stakeholders and with decision makers and with managers, and they understand the foundations or the basis of that. Um, that said, there's some things that are are sort of in between. So these uh, are structural models. Uh, in, in, including S-shaped curves and growth, you could say, well, you're not really opening that up. You're projecting a trend, but there's not enough, there's not much discussion there about the adoption patterns that result in the S-shaped curve. So 
uh, and then the machine learning, again, the same thing on machine learning. You can have machine learning models that are black box, but I also think you can have some that are very clear and very open and that you can examine the parts. So for instance, uh, there are data reduction models that will reduce the data, that will reproduce the data, and that will even tell you back, this is what I think you've told me, and, and I'm going to try and reproduce that. And you can examine them and you can say, what did you get right and, and, and what did you get wrong with that? Uh, another comparison and contrast would be on the on the on the direction of change or the time series of change that we're looking for. I would say that our journal is best at the medium or even the long term sorts of forecasts. We want it quantitative, but we want to be looking over the long term. There's really important practices about what's going on on stock markets on the on the in the next three months or six months, but they're such so rapidly moving that it can be difficult. Uh, it's so rapidly moving that sometimes different techniques are appropriate for long-term change. We're, we often think about 50 or 60 year cycles. The, the editors of the journal are key proponents of something called the Schumpeterian model of change, which is we get waves of technological change that come and go. And when one sets in, then that sets a path of growth for the next 50 or 60 years. So that's a comfortable time frame. It's not that we wouldn't want to think about even longer, um, but I think those things about the 50 or 60 year time cycle could be difficult to get published because, well, um, scientific results are coming out that it dies, you know, the, the life cycle of an article might be 10 years or so. So sometimes other journals don't want to be publishing things at the 50 or 60 year uh, uh, trends in technology. And therefore, the authors come to us with what other journals might like to see. So they, they might want to see the shorter term sort of series. So we get too little about those medium term uh, trends or projections. So can I say that explainability of the models is very important to you and to the whole community of the journal? I think so. And I think just like Marty mentioned about this comprehensive point of view, we do, we are coming from this as a systems engineering perspective. So we really want to be able to decompose systems in terms of holes and parts and understand the pieces about it. And that word, uh, some of my other editors, some of our other colleagues and other journals about technology talk about uh, the thing quality of technology. You know, that word technology can just sort of, you could just skim on the top of that and not actually unpack it and, decide, and talk about what you mean by technology. So we're increasingly thinking about the use. Technology is so pervasive in business, in marketing, uh, in environmental science. And so all these topics that we see, it's not enough just to say, well, I, we're interested in technology. What we need to be doing is to be questioning technology and then examining it and unpacking it and seeing the parts and the functions and the components of the technology as well. Right. Wow. Uh, Scott, I wanted to ask you something about slightly different. On your website, I saw this project called Big Prod, addressing productivity paradox with big data. And it's such an enticing title for this. Uh, uh, you know, it really gives me a lovely picture of paradoxes, big data, and then, you know, getting so can you describe what this project is? Absolutely. And uh, I sometimes feel embarrassed by the breadth of my interests, but they're my interests. And uh, I'm glad to be able to contribute to things that may not look, they may not look the same thing, but they they all part of my uh, desire or curiosity. So this was a, a Horizon 2020 funded project. This is the European Commission. Uh, the UK now, unfortunately, 
uh, is still debating about whether it will rejoin the Horizon 2020 uh, framework for uh, pan-European funding. But at that time, uh, the UK, I was in the Netherlands and began on this project. Now the premise is, when you think about, we, 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 but we've already been talking about measuring technology and you think about all the indicators that you could have to, to track technology. We've got things like patents, so you can count patents. You can even examine the words or the, or the objects of that. You've got shipments made and adoption patterns. You've got scientific articles written. So these are all output indicators. You can also look at input things like how uh, the scientific workforce, the number of people that have been educated, the R&D funding spent. So websites are an incredibly exciting uh, alternative to these. Uh, very surprisingly, but very few high-tech companies actually patent at all, uh, either because they don't see the need to or they want to protect their own assets. Very, very few write scientific articles. So if you're tracking science and technology and innovation for the sake of the government or for strategic intelligence before, because you work for a firm or a region, you're not going to have very good data about this. But on the other hand, if you point to these websites and you say, bring that in, send bots out there, collect this data, find out what the companies themselves are talking about, you get this amazing wealth of technology, information about technology and the company's perspectives on it. So that website with my partners in Delft University and VTT and the Fraunhofer Institute and uh, University of Maastricht uh, brought this in and put it into a, uh, a server where we can all examine this. What does this data say across the major high-tech sectors of Europe? And how does this correlate to your profitability? How does this correlate to your employment? How does it correlate to the products that you say that you're offering? So you can get the stuff out of financial databases, you can get the stuff out of science and technology databases, and you can just see yourself what the companies are saying. And it's an incredibly rich story just at the beginnings of being mined and explored by the scientific policy community or the engineering policy uh, community. The whole productivity issue is this. In Europe, um, we're not getting as much out of what we put in. Uh, so technologies are growing more advanced. Uh, the economy is growing, but it's not being put back in better salaries, higher employment. So that's very concerning to me, to the commission, and to many. Uh, and so that's probably the deeper question behind that and behind the uh, behind the project itself. You can gather all this data. You can learn fascinating things about technology and employment. Uh, but how's that, how does that impact the, the, the lives of people in, in, the, in, the, in Europe's very varied uh, regions? Right. So mm, there are many, many uh, points there and then the, lots of kind of uh, things to think about. But can I ask, when you analyze these websites from these companies and then you're looking at uh, how do you quantify it so that you know you 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 can like like the patents the number of yeah. patents uh, yeah. yeah yeah no great question so we are really reliant and the field is really reliant on something called the microsoft academic graph so right now in the news we're all talking about large language models of which chat gpt3 hmm. is one of them microsoft hmm. got into this business a while back by taking everything they got out of the bing search engine uh, all the open science that they could get in training their models. And they end up with a hierarchy of different topics uh, that's nine, at least nine levels deep. 
and, the, and, the, and that's still available for you. They don't maintain that project, but you can bring this yourself into your cloud servers. And basically amounts to this. It's, it's a bag of words, a collection of words. And you say, okay, I've got a website and I'm going to give it to Microsoft Academic Draft. And I'm going to find the, I'm going to find the relationships and you'll get back. Okay, this web page has this proportion of Microsoft Topic 5 and, and Microsoft Academic Topic 10 or 11. And then a whole host of really fascinating questions emerge like, uh, well, we've been interested in the question of servitization. That is, companies putting services bound into their very products. Also, digitalization. So there's a new regime of technology of making things more digitalized and thereby getting more functionality out of it. We could think, for instance, about our about our electrical vehicles or even our conventional vehicles. They're all highly digitized, and the and the automotive companies get so much more value add uh, about making digital products. So those are just two questions that come out. Uh, and the very traditional way, the one that gets the the economists uh, of technology concerned and excited has got to do with how do we classify our industries? There's a system called the standard industrial code. And those systems, uh, despite the best efforts of everyone that collects and collates that stuff, are 20 or 30 years too late. So is it really true that these are Europe's industries or are there some new emerging ones that if we wait around, we're only going to learn that they exist 20 years too late? So there is a very strong relationship between what you see in Microsoft Academic Graph and what the standard industrial code will tell you. And you do see indicators of entirely new industries that have not yet been fully recorded. Wish I could tell you it was a one-to-one. -one. It's a very complex relationship, but you can absolutely find meaningful correlations and structures there in that data. And we're all looking forward to a new future where these things aren't posted from national governments 20 or 30 years too late. We have more of a dynamic system of really understanding what's happening just like Google can go send their bots out every week or every day to websites, uh, industry and government can be doing them themselves and learning almost in real time uh, how industries are changing and even their locations where they are uh, in space. This opens up another like real avenue that like, you know, a really interesting avenue that the governments are kind of in many places are lagging the industry. And, you know, at least from the data that we have, maybe that gets shaped into the policies that we get. Uh, there is this lag, which is kind of lag that's serious. Very serious. Uh, I heard of, so here in the United Kingdom, uh, we're a nation of nations. I'm in uh, Scotland. There's a devolved responsibilities for the Scottish government, just like there's responsibilities for the UK government as a whole. The data collection is for the UK as a whole. Uh, very important things about an employment uh, and high-tech opportunity. Uh, it's often collated to the nation as a whole, and therefore you get Scotland back as, okay, Scotland, you're just one thing. Uh, and, and the Scottish data is actually pretty well disaggregated, but it's not disaggregated enough. Scotland needs to know where it gets its value at. What, what, what do we do as a nation in the United Kingdom to, to develop new high-tech goods for the betterment of the people in, in Scotland? How do we attract new firms? Uh, how do we create anchor regions which will facilitate uh, our future growth in the future? And uh, the data about this is just uh, not nearly as good as we'd like. It comes out of the ports, basically. If you go to the ports of Scotland, you ask, what's being shipped in and what's being shipped out, you can get fairly uh, disaggregated data. But Scottish Enterprise, which is an NGO responsible for facilitating small and medium-sized companies and large companies, 
don't have what they need to know, but we're still making innovation plans of where are we going to be for the next 10 years and the next 50 years. But you want to, we all want to anticipate the high tech opportunities of the future. And we just have too little data. Decision makers have too little data uh, to, to really make the good decisions. Interesting. Is this the process that you're describing is part of uh, tech mining, like uh, the um, exploiting really technologies that we need for, for the future, for competitive advantage of businesses and also for government? Absolutely, it is. Um, so that was a project that I started at Georgia Tech, and I've, I've sort of broadened my understanding over the years. I in at Georgia Tech, uh, we were providing guidance, multidisciplinary guidance to Georgia Tech's own research centers, and sometimes to large companies like IBM or, for instance, the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, and that process was, at that time, you could go to things like Forrester Group. They would tell you things about shipments of new products. So that was a good source of data. But at that time, it was just... Uh, really not thought of fully that you could be uh, looking at scientific articles and getting value at. The idea of patent analysis had been around for a long while. I don't want to say that hadn't been done, but uh, now let's start making maps of these, not just single indicators, but let's understand how the parts in the whole fit together. So I learned that that was useful to academic uh, academics. I learned that it was useful for industry. Uh, and for mission-oriented government. But then I also learned more of the government. So I learned more, uh, particularly when I came to Britain, about how we have national indicators of science and technology performance. And that's the third That's the third part of that story. Now, the question of how do we make use of data in all its forms, whether it's text data or numerical data, uh, is another question entirely. But, but that process of Let's instrument the whole innovation system. Let's see if we can see the parts of it, watch different parts of it inside the firm and outside the firm and inside government and outside the government is, is part of that agenda. So to circle back around text mining, tech mining is to look at uh, uh, text analysis of science and technology for sources. This could even be news articles. I haven't seen very much about uh, news articles, but the ambition would be to watch societal reception and issues about new technology, but it's often doing patent analysis. It's often doing uh, uh, scientific articles, increasingly doing websites. Uh, and it's a different thing, actually, than the extrapolation of trends based on the adoption. And we also know, all know that uh, innovation and technology or research and development run in parallel streams. Sometimes science contributes directly to technology, sometimes technology contributes directly to science, but they're really two different uh, processes that we need to watch and monitor. Yeah, interesting. Now I can see the connection much better in terms of you know technological forecasting and social change and policy and how they are all uh, related to each other. Yeah, um, the whole, you, the whole field of tech, yeah. tech mining kind of uh, exploded in the journal Technological Forecasting and Social Change, which was really of the first kind. Of, let's 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 look at trends. Let's look at the delivery of hard technologies to let's put it in its extended context by watching uh, science. Let's look at let's look at science-based industry. Let's look at uh, patents. Uh, let's think more fluidly about technology and its classification system. So that's really contributed to the journal's efforts in this field of management of technology, management of technology, top technologists inside 
companies like Philips, for instance, and just to give one example, I know that is very active in this practice, really appreciate that. Uh, things like uh, uh, patent maps, where they can really see the landscape of, play, of, of technologies that they're engaged in and ones that they don't have but ought to have. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so um, there's a lot that over there I want to dig in, <laughs> um, but um, we'll leave that to our uh, listeners, audience to, to go and dig into these uh, topics that we talked about. Uh, we, we're going to move on to, to, to the last part of our conversation, um, where traditionally we ask questions um, about um, uh, first thing, recommending a book um, that you, you, you might have for our audiences and the audiences can read and learn about technological forecasting and social change or in general in forecasting context. Yeah, I uh, thought hard about that question. And uh, I like books. It's a difficult I mean, one. <laughs> it's a difficult one. I, uh, I wish there were more good books about technological uh, forecasting. But fortunately, there are really good books about, I, I read broadly, there are very good books in the space of forecast. And the one that's really been the most profound for me recently has been the, uh, called The Book of Why. Uh, so there is a causal revolution going on in economics. Uh, you know, we've all heard the, we all heard the aphorism that correlation is not uh, causation. Book of Why says, yes, except when it is, sometimes correlation is causation. And it requires a really careful unpacking of your mental models of what you're forecasting uh, and reasoning about cause and effect. So I recommend it highly. It's a mostly a qualitative uh, book and a lot of the applied work is continuing along alongside that book. Uh, but, you know, just imagine the appeal for, for, for white box forecasters that you could maybe uh, tease out cause and effect and some of the complex things that we need to, to talk about. So yeah, very good book. Interesting. I know it down. And um, Sevandino you know, is what we want to ask. The last question <laughs> that we traditionally ask in the pot. <laughs> Marty, yes. So uh, the the last question is like, uh, what is the uh, what 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 would be a paper that you recommend? Like a must read, a paper. And and I'm kind of sorry to ask this from you, Scott, because you know you've got such a broad interest range. Yeah, it's quite difficult for you to pick like you know one paper. Well, I I do have one, and again, that taught me a little bit of thinking. Uh, and I, then they're old, uh, and I wish they were newer. I wish we could we, we could update these. Uh, if I were only to name one, uh, it's a paper from the Energy Journal in 2007. It's called Vehicle Ownership and Income Growth Worldwide. And why I value that paper so much is it examines the consequences of the global middle class remind us that there's a growing middle class and that's gonna really have profound effects on, uh, on our transportation patterns, on our energy consumption. Uh, and it, and, it, and it, 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 yeah, I'll just leave it at that. A really interesting paper for anyone who's interested in social technical systems, maybe a little bit concerning. And this is alongside the whole issue of, are we gonna be, how far are electric vehicles gonna go? Uh, the, the next question is how, how much more of a petrol future for transport do we have? Highly contested, but they've, they've put numbers, they put uh, trends on here. And, and I feel like they give a really good quantitative framework for understanding the problem. And some of these questions are Amazing. still not 
old. No. Right? Oh, yeah, that one is not old. This is 2007. Uh, and if I could even talk about some older ones, another one would be the Passive Future Global Mobility. This is in Scientific American in 1997. And so these authors, uh, Schaefer and Victor, uh, they think they know the shape of uh, global change. And I think they've done a pretty good job. But their question is like, how, much, how often are we going to be flying? How much are we going to be driving? Who's going to have high, who's going to have high speed trains in the world? Uh, and mm. again, admirable in that exact same shape. Uh, they're not. They put their numbers down. We can test them 30 years later and say, have you 20 years later and say, did you get this right or not? Uh, and uh, they just give a good framework in numbers and in reasoning about thinking about really important issues. So th these landmark papers do because they're as you as you said, because they're putting some concrete numbers down. Is there like a like after 20 years revisiting those papers or like no, are, are this, there... is a, this is a uh, we're all guilty of this. There's too little of that. We need to go back. We need to figure. And when we do when those people that do go back and figure, you can find obvious uh, uh, biases. Uh, I mean, not personal biases, but forecasts always tend to. Uh, I wish I could tell you some of the aphorisms that we learned from those people that do go back and do it. But we tend to be. uh we tend to believe that change, technological change is easy when actually it's it's quite hard. Uh, trends seem to be locked in and the new hot things sometimes don't take off as we think they're going to. Yeah, it is so complicated and there are like a lot of things, a lot of dimensions into them that it's not uh, easy to uh, really predict. And if one goes off, then the whole thing might collapse or... Um, so that's where the systematic view really comes in. Yeah, I could imagine that. But yeah, it would be interesting to, to see, you know, reflecting on those things after 20 years or 40, 50 years and see uh, what we got right and what we got wrong and uh, how they could be useful for long-term prediction future, yeah. Absolutely. There were people in the 70s talking about the, the energies that we'd be using today and they knew something was afoot, mm. right? They were talking about things like fusion and we sort of laughed like oh fusion huh when will that happen but you know there have been new fusion breakthroughs recently uh i don't think we'll have fusion anytime soon but you know it might be in our future yeah I remember watching um, uh, watching programs like it was called Beyond 2000 or something where they show, showed this like, you know, vehicles going in the air and then just, you, you know, like everyone having a vehicle that goes in the air and then goes down. Uh, we are still waiting for that. Yeah, least... we've been talking about air cars for forever. Uh, and uh, apparently they are technically feasible, even if they're not institutionally desired yeah. another one that's this is the reverse story we had electric cars back in 1910 they were more favored than uh combustion vehicles uh and we threw that away just like we had trams many european cities had trams and they and, and many united states cities had trams too and they tore those all out and it's very topical and current and you know we're living in this world and you're researching that like big messy uh, systems in different different aspects absolutely fascinating thank you so much for spending time with us thank you for having me and uh letting me tell you my uh big story <laughs> yeah no thanks so much for it was great having you have you been to international symposium on forecasting no uh, uh i would would you recommend it? i would be happy to do so
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes, uh, I invite you to be on the International Symposium on Forecasting. We have a great community of forecasters. Um, and this year is happening at uh, Virginia in the United States. Um, yeah, Perhaps I'll send you some more. I want to emphasize that the journal start, our journal started with technology forecasting, uh, but it's the least active part of the journal. And I think that that's such a shame. So if I could go and find a community of people that really wanted to, uh, for real forecasting people that would really like to contribute, then that would be great for the health of the journal and for the for the academic knowledge as a whole. Yeah, definitely, for sure. All right, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much, Scott and Samandi. Thank you, everybody out there listening. Um, yeah, we look forward to next episode and a new guest with you all. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you liked this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. We appreciate you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.